All right, so uh, welcome to the Bible study for uh, December the 4th. One announcement on your tables in front of you, you see those little green or red cards. Uh, those are uh, by the uh, Board of Christian Outreach, and they were handed out at the Christmas parade, I believe, right? <clears throat> the reason, how many? A thousand, wonderful. Hand it out. So the reason they're in front of you is that this is part of your homework for today. Now, your homework is to take one of those cards home and give it to somebody, anybody. Give it to the, uh, the, the person running the cash register. Uh, give it to somebody, a neighbor, a friend, anybody. Um, if you're really chicken... Uh, leave it on the magazine table at the doctor's office, <laughs> something like that. Uh, but everybody take a card and give it away to somebody. Uh, what does it do? Well, how many people need to know what the time of a service is? Yes, that's, that's good. But the other thing is, by, by them seeing a card like that, it tells them, uh, this church invites me. This church uh, wants me to come. You know, if nobody, if nobody passed out a card or an invitation like that, I think a lot of people sort of, uh, by default, maybe they don't even think about it, but I, I guess, you know, they don't even feel like they're invited or welcomed. Like, this is a members-only thing. You know, like, and there are org a lot of organizations, like, that are members-only, right? Like, Nobody's invited me to the Collinsville Rec and Gun Club for some activity, you know. Um, uh, you know, you look at different organizations, the YMCA, you know, they don't, they don't come around and say, hey, come down to our gym and work out. You know, the, that's not what, what they do. I mean, they're members. It's a membership program, right? Membership organization. And churches are membership organizations too. But we also are... Uh, open to the community as well. And that's something that always, I call it putting the door, the uh, welcome mat out. The welcome mat out to everybody. You're welcome to come. Yeah, we'd love for you to become a member too, but the first step is just coming and, and participating in some of our activities. So that, that's why these invitations are so important. Okay, let's get back to our Bible study then. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let me begin with a prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for our Sunday morning and a new week and the second week of Advent. Uh, we appreciate and love the changing seasons. Just as the seasons of uh, the weather change, so also the seasons of the church here change. And, and we're shifting back now to the life of Jesus and special emphasis now on his uh, birth and all the preparations that went into that. In the, in the first uh, birth of Christ, but also uh, as we apply those same principles to our lives as well today, we're grateful to do that. And we look today at one of Jesus's great-grandfathers, David, and how important he was as part of the matrix of prophecies that would then help to identify your son and Messiah and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 1 Samuel 16. Uh, un, uh, open uh, kind of beginning thoughts. 
I'd like you to shout out here some unlikely heroes, sports, politics, war, or just your own experience. What makes them unlikely? How does this make them remarkable? Uh, the first one I thought of when I read that was Sergeant York. You know, Sergeant York, World War I, right? Pacifist. And then he turns around to, to get the Congressional Medal of Honor for uh, valor on the battlefield. Uh, very unlikely hero there. How about some others? Who are some other unlikely heroes? Some famous walk-on at Nebraska football or, uh, um, I don't know, Cardinals. Who's the most unlikely hero of the Cardinals? It's going to sound strange, but my uh, high school counselor, Mr. Goodman, he did a lot for me. Okay, uh, a person in your own personal experience, a counselor, all right, and David uh, Fries, right? Yeah, uh, that was awesome and amazing, wasn't it? Pujols is a 23rd round draft choice. Pujols? Really? 400th second player chosen. Pujols was the 23rd round draft choice. And the, what was the 400? 402nd player chosen. You know, so you think about that guy when he was chosen. What, you know, most guys like that, they're going to last one, two, three years in the majors and they're gone, right? <clears throat> An unlikely hero. Yeah, so uh, we, we love unlikely heroes. Uh, we're, we're excited about that. They happen all the time. And David certainly qualifies as one of those. Let's pick it up here at uh, 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 5. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? This goes back to Saul's uh, taking worship for granted and, uh, and thinking, well, I'll just perform this sacrifice. I don't need to wait for Samuel. Uh, but it, you know, and this is what caused him to be rejected. His heart was not, he didn't, he did not follow the word of the Lord carefully. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Let's just keep going. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. 
Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. All right. Uh, God looks at a man's heart. Um, So looking at your study guide, um, God alone can see every intention of our heart. Why was this important for David? How can this knowledge act as both a warning and a comfort to us? So as I was thinking about this, uh, I thought about the importance of our core convictions as people, especially when it comes to the choosing of leaders. Do you believe in the Ten Commandments or do you believe in the Ten Suggestions? Uh, This is a big divide in our culture today. Uh, many, many people have a sort of a, 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 a nod. They give a nod to the uh, Christian faith. Eh, it's a good, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, not, not against it. Wouldn't say anything, you know, too much against it. Um, but then you watch them and they just one after another dismiss this commandment, dismiss this truth. And uh, obviously their heart is not steadfast on any of these things. Uh, That's why I think it's so important to um, think about our core core convictions. And I have been talking, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been mentioning a simple way to grasp that. You don't have to ask necessarily somebody, are you a confessional Lutheran? A lot of people (laughs) wouldn't quite know what that means. But the beginning of being a confessional Lutheran would be to have these two convictions in your heart, the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed, unwavering, not wavering for one minute on any one of those truths as they are um, uh, put forward. And by the way, they are the beginning of the Book of Concord. The Book of Concord was a book finally published in 1580. It was the book that was put together as the Lutherans were trying to make their case to the Roman church of of their legitimacy and of their call to the church to return to the faith uh, handed down from the fathers. And, And so when you look at the title page of the Book of Concord, it does not say the Lutheran faith. The title page in great big huge letters, the Christian faith. Right, the Christian faith. Lutheran is a name that was put upon us as a, der- a, a name of derision. It was an attempt by the papists to say these Germans and Swedes and <clears throat> others from up there in northern part of Europe, they're just radicals they're just rebels uh, <clears throat> and they're not true Christians they're 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 followers of men not of Christ and not of God and this was a they're a smear campaign uh, uh, upon the whole Lutheran Reformation uh, but the, the 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 key point was that that we needed to come back to these core convictions, the core faith, the core Christian faith, 
And, and that was what the, the Reformation was all about. And that's what's so important when it comes to uh, everything else for us in our lives too. Choosing of a pastor, core convictions. I know I, I said this when, we, uh, when Pastor Osborne came, uh, <clears throat> the uh, first associate pastor that I worked with, and uh, uh, I said this at his farewell when he, we, he was leaving here to go serve at uh, another church in Mattoon, Illinois. And I, I, I said, you know, when he came, I remember him uh, when he, he arrived uh, <clears throat> and he was getting out of a car. I don't know if somebody picked him up or how that worked, but he was walking across the parking lot and headed toward the church offices. And I just said a little prayer, Lord, let this man be a true Christian. And uh, I think a lot of people th- heard that and thought, that's a pretty weird prayer to ask, uh, but it really is the key prayer, I think, about, about anything. You know, er, all technical skills, uh, and I've felt uh, this for a long time, especially when it comes to calling teachers, pastors, anybody, you know, anybody serving on a board. We got a voters assembly after the late service. These people were electing to these offices. Uh, technical skills come in second. Technical skills can be learned or picked up with the help of advisors. Obviously, no president of the United States, for example, has all the technical skills that are needed to run a country as huge as this. That person needs all sorts of advisors and helpers and so on and so forth. But the one thing the president needs above all and you don't have there's no one no advisors that can give you this and that would be your core convictions and your core beliefs about what is right and what is wrong and things like that and so this is why God chooses David because David was a man who he could see his heart and he could see how dedicated David was to the Lord uh, a man uh, after uh, his own uh, his own heart and, uh, and this is what, why David was, was chosen. And, so, and it's the same method we need to follow when it comes to seeking leaders of, of any sort, you know, in our, in our church. And, and, and I, would, I would extend it even to the, out to the nation as well, electing political leaders. If you ever looked at that webpage that we have on, uh, on country and state, uh, I have there at the very top, uh, a real simple, these are simple things that I think every leader that we elect, you know, if we can elect a leader, you know, that, that follows, that believes, for example, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, I don't think we necessarily have to elect a leader who believes completely in the Apostles' Creed, but definitely the Ten Commandments. Do they or do they not believe the Ten Commandments? Uh, <clears throat> uh, I, if they don't, if they show any wavering on that, I'm not voting for them. Uh, and I, I think that's really an important thing to do. Uh, let me throw that back out to you. Uh, how can uh, this uh, choosing of David uh, by God looking at his heart, how can this knowledge act both as a warning and a comfort to us today? How would you answer that question? Carrie. Well, I was just going to go back to, I feel like when I vote, 
I know poor convictions just by looking at their stance on abortion. And I tell my kids I can't vote for somebody that would be for this. Mm -hmm. I know that tells me a lot about who they are um, just with that one issue. Yeah, Carrie mentions, I know, for everybody else to hear, and I have this, I'm recording this as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, when we look at politicians, I know people complain and they say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, choose leaders just on one issue, like one, you know, don't be a one-issue voter and so on. But I do think that's true. I think if, if they waver on that, they, they are completely wavering, they are, they are completely are not committed to the Ten Commandments. Um, if they if they <clears throat> believe that um, dis destruction of the unborn is is an okay thing to do, uh, and I would extend that now, especially also to marriage, uh, is another area um, where they where we look at our leaders and we say, what are your core convictions? Um, and 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 they are lacking in them. They are wavering and and uh, and uh, one thing that I'm. Uh, I brought up in my last new member class that I've, I've been teaching, um, and I'm going to be talking about this sooner or later at some point, and that is I've, I've, I've sort of thrown this down as a kind of uh, <clears throat> a line to cross, so to speak. Uh, let's say I, I'm talking to somebody who thinks, okay, I, I'm not, I'm not going to make an issue about homosexual behavior or you know, gay marriage or something. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And I say, well, God's word's not okay with that. Uh, I don't think you should be okay with it. <clears throat> but given that is the fact that you are, uh, you're, you're at right now at this point in your life, let me ask you this question. Would you be okay with uh, pedophilia? Would you be okay with men, uh, marrying boys and having boyfriends, little boys, uh, 12 years old, 10 years old, would you be okay with that? I have yet to meet anybody that said they would be okay with that. I predict within 10 years, these same people who today say, I'm okay with gay marriage, they're going to be okay with that. It's, the handwriting is on the wall. If they are saying it's okay for little boys and little girls to change themselves with chemicals and surgeries into another sex, you know, transition. If they believe it's okay for a child to make that choice, why would they not be okay with a child saying, well, I want to have sex with men. Uh, they'll give me toys and stuff and I'll be happier that way. Why can't I do that? That's what I want to do. It's my life. How can you stop me? This is the way I am. How can you stop me from doing that? This was uh, already uh, put forward as an option by uh, Alfred Kinsey from Indiana University, an embarrassment to that university to this day. Uh, he actually you know, proposed this as, uh, as an option. Um, for people, uh, and uh, and so and this is back. I mean, he was writing back in the what the 40s and 50s uh, when he was writing these things and doing experiments with these things. Uh, 
very, very dark uh, side of American history uh, that happened there. Anyway, core convictions. When we choose leaders, what are your core convictions? But let's, the question was twofold. What about you personally? And uh, that's why I put the words temptation and trial up here. Uh, what are our core convictions? Would they hold up to real serious temptations? Like here's a temptation. You know, uh, 99 people all around you are screaming at you, uh, you know, to change your view about the Sixth Commandment. You're going to lose your job if you don't change your view about the Sixth Commandment. That's a, that's a kind of a temptation and a trial right there. It's a temptation to give in, to be liked, to be popular with everybody around you. Uh, or, uh, you know, it could even become a trial because you're going to get persecuted for not agreeing with this majority opinion that, uh, that is uh, floating around us at all times. Or, uh, you know, you could take a, 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 all sorts of other core convictions, too, about Jesus being the only way. Uh, that's another one that's very commonly uh, despised. If you say such a thing, you say Jesus is the only way of salvation. Um, or uh, the thing that's happening now in, um, in some uh, corporations or even uh, sports teams and things like this where... I, like if I was uh, if I worked at uh, a grocery store, and they wanted me to put a gay pride uh, patch on my uh, apron, I couldn't do that. I could not do that. And there was a, a court case uh, recently in Arkansas. I forget which company it was, Albertsons or Kroger or something like that. Um, and these they fired these employees. The employees asked, could we just put our name tag over? If you want to sew the patch on, okay, but we'll put our name tag over <clears throat> the patch because we don't agree with it. It's not our faith. You're fired. Well, I went to court, and they lost uh, over that. That was religious persecution. But it's not always going that way. In other cases, it may go the opposite. You'll get fired. So now, what's your temptation? Cave in on my core conviction or hold forth? Uh, there's a, a court, uh, there's a case going to the Supreme Court now about a graphic designer mm -hmm. and the website. They, uh, they a, gay group, a gay couple went for them to design a website for their wedding and they refused and it's now... Going to the Supreme yep. Court. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Mary brings up, I knew this was going to happen. It, uh, it, it happens with everybody that's involved in any kind of uh, artistic sort of presentation of some type where you're asked to paint a picture, bake a cake, make a web page, do photography, flower designs, and you're supposed to do that in celebration of some activity. In this case, gay marriage. Okay. I've often compared that to what we wouldn't think for a moment that a, a, a website developer would have the right to say, I'm not going to do a web page for the Ku Klux Klan. Right? No, I don't think anybody would say, well, you got to do that. You know? No, you don't have to do that. You don't believe in it. 
I don't, this is, this is where we're at. But see, for the gay community, and it's not just the gay community, it's all the supporters of that community, what they, their agenda is to destroy these core convictions. They really, that is their agenda, to destroy these core convictions, uh, to eliminate them and erase them. And so they won't allow people to say, I, here I stand on my core convictions. No, sorry, you're going to be smashed, crushed, uh, silenced. Because we, we hate those. We hate those, those convictions. We have these convictions. Our convictions are, and you can figure out what, what their commandments look like. So, uh, Jeannie. So, they, I know that it passed in the Senate this so-called Respect for Marriage Act. Right. And none of the amendments, the religious amendments, passed. Right. Um, yeah, that's another big case. What will that mean for the churches? Right, this very misnamed Respect for Marriage uh, bill. Uh, <clears throat> will has lots of ramifications for for me personally uh, uh, again I don't marry everybody that comes and asks for me to, to do a wedding there's lots of weddings I turn down uh, because they're not in agreement with what we believe and so and I've had people get mad at me and leave you know leave the office uh, you know they, they just think like we're some sort of Walmart you know for weddings or something like that and uh, but you know that happens all the time but if it's a gay couple that comes in it's going to be a different story and and this bill will only make their their agenda stronger it will only make their their efforts more successful and uh, I mean I could be we could be sued um, you know we could have all sorts of things um, tax exempt status uh, taken away um, think about what our budget would look like if we had to pay property taxes on these 13 acres right here what's your household property tax look like what do you think Good Shepherd's property tax would look like if we were forced to pay that every year. Um, we need to plan on it because I think it's gonna probably happen uh, before too long. We, we had a customer come into the bakery the day before Easter. Was it Easter or Good Friday? And wanted us to write on a cake, Happy Jesus on a Stick Day. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was literally shocked. I'd never heard that phrase before. Apparently it's kind of common. And I would, what am I going to do? Well, fortunately, I just said, we don't, nobody was there to, that was able to write on the cake at all anyway. Yeah. So we just told, told them no. Said, no, we can't do that. But it was kind of scary, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Where is this going? Yeah. So again, for, uh, for everybody here, Mary said at the bakery, somebody came in and asked for a cake to be decorated with the words, Jesus on a happy, or Mary, yep. uh, Jesus on a stick day. Again, the, the, you wouldn't go to a Jewish bakery and say, you know, something offensive to Jewish people like Happy Holocaust Day. You would not, nobody would even think for a moment that a, no Jewish baker would have to bake a cake like that, right? Uh, again, but we're working with a different reality here and we're working with another agenda 
another agenda. The agenda is, again, destroy the Ten Commandments uh, and the Apostles' Creed, uh, for that matter, as well. Uh, Bill. Pastor, this week, the uh, Illinois Family Institute put out a newsletter talking about the Democrats in Illinois that feel they have enough votes now to change our Constitution uh, allowing abortion, which in Illinois means all the way up to uh, birth time. Point of birth, right, yeah. They want to put it into the Constitution. Right, I wouldn't. That's against the Ten Commandments, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Jeannie. Um, the Baker in California that he took his case all the way to the Supreme Court and won because they were trying to force him to make a cake for um, uh, a gay marriage. They're after him again. Mm-hmm. I mean, so they're relentless. And right. It doesn't stop. Even if you win at the Supreme Court, they're going to come right back at you again. Well, the, and the lady in flower, the flower lady in Washington, she's the same thing. I mean, she. She's still being persecuted. Right. Well, we need to pray for those people. And most of all, we also need to prepare ourselves, you know, that we need to be ready. It's one thing to watch them be persecuted and pray for them. It's another thing. What will happen when it's me, when I'm the one uh, uh, being persecuted? Will I hold fast to my convictions, my core convictions? Yeah. Something even worse than this. And I was telling Aaron last night, I saw an article, I didn't read it. It said something like, Be thankful for your stubborn child. And I said, I kind of understand this with Caleb, you know, but what a stubborn. But as we're talking about this, I'm like, This is why we're thankful for stubborn children if we direct them in mm-hmm. the correct way so that they won't be swayed by. Uh, whatever the popular opinion is. Right. Um, so be thankful for those stubborn yeah. children. Yeah. Back in the back in the 80s, James Dobson w- w- was a big one on on that point, and he pointed out that these these children. What did he title them? Strong-willed. The strong-willed child. Yeah, he wrote a book uh, on that strong-willed child, and he pointed that same thing out that these children are, can be hard to raise, and they you know they give you the gray hairs and all of that. But some of these children turn out to be pretty impressive people later on in life if they do hold to these core convictions. Whereas the compliant child, which, you know, but I wish all my children were the super compliant and do everything I tell them to do, that child, you know, may grow up to also be compliant to everybody else, too. You know, there's a, there's a place where we need to be compliant, but there's also a place where we need to dig our heels in. And uh, <clears throat> that's a kind of a delicate uh, area there. Well, let's go on uh, now, and um, I'm going to skip the chapter 5, Connections to David and Jesus. Uh, again, David was an unlikely choice as a king. Jesus was an unlikely choice as a Messiah. I think we all probably recognize that. But I'd like to go on now to 2 Samuel 7 and to the promise that uh, was given to David about his kingship and how important it was. So this is a great chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David is given this tremendous messianic promise. We'll start in verse 4, but that 
that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house, uh, build me a house to dwell in? This is about the, te the temple. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly." From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. <clears throat> all right, this is a great thing. Let's take a look at it. First point I want to make. This often happens in these prophecies. There's some uh, overlapping or some interweaving going on. Part of this prophecy applies to Jesus. Part of it applies to Solomon. So, important point to know about Hebrew. There's no Hebrew word for grandfather. If you look in an English Bible, do a concordance search on the word grandfather. I think it only comes up twice in the English Bible. <clears throat> they just don't have that word in their language. So, like in my case, Michael Paul Walther is the father of David and Paul Walther. But according to the Hebrew mentality, I'm also the father of Eliot. My, my David's son, and uh, Annalena, David's daughter, and I'm also the father of Paul's children. That's the way the Hebrews thought. The father is the father. doesn't matter how many generations removed there may be. The father is the father. It's the line. It's the lineage that matters. Not that it was this next generation or not. And so that's the way the, the, the Hebrews uh, spoke. And, and so when Jesus talks, about, or when uh, Nathan talks about this prophecy to David, he's talking both about Solomon and he's talking about this later descendant of David who will be Jesus. So some of these things apply to Solomon. Uh, like, for example, verse 13 applies definitely to Jesus. Uh, Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever, but Jesus's does. Verses 14 and 15, which talk about discipline, those apply to Solomon. 
and all the other of David's sons. And they apply to you and me as well. This is simply the message of law and gospel, that God, what does he do? Um, he punishes uh, when we are disobedient. Uh, we just said it in our confession for today. Uh, we, we acknowledge the, the temporal and eternal punishments of our sins, right? Uh, but verse 15 applies as well, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So as long as we are repentant about our sins, while God judges and disciplines us, he still justifies and forgives us. That's the, the, the ministry of the law and the gospel that apply to all of God's children and God's people and of David's descendants. But one descendant in particular is special. And, and again, verse 16, uh, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And that happened only through Jesus. <clears throat> so Jesus is that Messiah. This is one of the most important messianic promises in the Bible. It was well known in the New Testament. This is why they always refer to Jesus as son of David, right? Son of David, because that was a title for the Messiah. Um, I don't know if you've, uh, I, I find it interesting to listen sometimes to YouTube uh, studies by rabbis. If you could be a fly on the wall in a synagogue and you're sitting in the um, uh, Torah classes and a Jewish child asks the rabbi, well, my friends are Christians and they say Jesus is the Messiah. What should I tell them? How do you think the rabbi would respond to that question? Well, you can get all sorts of YouTube videos and you can hear how they will respond to that. <clears throat> At initially, you know, they kind of have a little bit of a problem because Jesus clearly checks off the messianic prophecy boxes, right? He is a son of Abraham. He is a son of David. He was born in Bethlehem. These are all prophecies that the Bible gives us, right? Um, is there any prophecy of the Old Testament that doesn't seem to be fulfilled by Jesus? I'm going to throw that out for your thoughts. I don't know if anybody's going to come up with the same one that, that I've heard the rabbis refer to. Here it is. And we heard it in our Old Testament lesson for this morning. Isaiah chapter 11. The rabbi's response why Jesus is not the Messiah in their mind is because they believe that the Messiah, when he came, would immediately bring that final peace to the world where the lion or the, the lamb would lay down with the lion. Uh, you know, <clears throat> all there would be total peace on earth. And the rabbis say, Is there peace on earth? No. So Jesus can't be the Messiah. That's pretty much their strongest argument against the Christian faith that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, however, that, uh, that ignores a couple of things. One, it ignores the fact that Jesus in his earthly ministry clearly showed this sort of new kingdom through all of his miracles. And he shows the, um, <clears throat> he shows the uh, uh, 
taming of creation, for example, in the uh, uh, stilling of the storm, feeding of the 5,000, and all those, other, uh, those kinds of miracles that Jesus did. So he gives us a preview of the new heavens and the new earth in the miracles that he performed. Another thing about Jesus that I think is important, and I don't know how the rabbis would respond to this, but Jesus promises to, like, is there a, is there, do we have to say that these Old Testament promises require that everything had to happen at once? Does it have to happen at once? Or is the plan for the Messiah to come and to be established as the Messiah and then to come again to fulfill all of those prophecies and to bring judgment day on and to bring the new heavens and the new earth. That's the part that if you would have, you know, again, if we could have been, again, a fly on the wall in a synagogue when Paul, remember Paul in the book of Acts, he, he always goes to the synagogue first. And they would have these heated debates. And, and some of the Jews would believe Paul, but some of them would not. And that's when G Paul would get stoned and harassed and chased out of town and all of that. I mean, eventually that's why Paul died. We, because these rabbis were like, Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the Messiah. That's blasphemy. And that is eventually what <clears throat> got uh, Paul killed because they were able to convince the Romans that this teaching is stirring up trouble. These Christians are stirring up trouble, and the Romans wanted there to be peace and, uh, and uh, nobody fighting over religious issues and things like this. Um, and so that's what got Jesus killed. That's what got Paul killed. Um, but that's really the contention that still stands today in any, any synagogue that you might go to, I'm sure, if you had any sort of discussion about the Messiah. Why don't you believe Jesus is the Messiah? They would say, I still see all these wars. I still see all these bad things going on. The Messiah is supposed to put an end to all of that. It hasn't happened, therefore I don't see Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, that, that's their argument. And uh, again, our, our response to that would be, well, he showed already that he, he did those things on a... Uh, a smaller scale, you might say, in his miracles. And he promises to do that again on the last day. And there we are. That's, that's the only thing we can say. And that's, but I think I would also say this. I don't really think that argument is the real reason why Jesus is rejected as Messiah. I think there's another reason why he's rejected as Messiah. And that is because Jesus comes to bring righteousness as a gift. But these same people who refuse to see Jesus as the Messiah because he doesn't bring an end to all war, they are also the same people who see their salvation or their righteousness as something they've earned and, and something they're credited for. And that's really the major reason, I think, while it may not be discussed or openly admitted to, but I think that's the major reason why Jesus is rejected. I don't want to admit, as we did today in the early service, and as we will to do in the 1030 service, I will not say, I am a poor, miserable sinner. I just, I'm not going to say that. That's not, I'm not. 
I'm not, I'm, of course, you know I'm saying this as, a, like I'm an actor, right? Uh, uh, get me kicked out of the ministry real quick. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is at the very heart. Again, these are part of these core convictions. I'm not a poor, miserable sinner. Don't tell me that. Uh, I'm, I'm a decent person. And, and I believe that people get rewarded for their, for their good, good deeds and good life. And that, that's the major divide over the Messiah. Uh, and, um, and so that's where we're at. Let's go to Mephibosheth, though. We've got to make sure we save some time for Mephibosheth. Uh, and this is going to tie together nicely. Let's go back a little bit. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Uh, I will just give you a little background on uh, Mephibosheth here and what happened. So Mephibosheth is this, one of the sons of Saul. And you remember that David was best friends with Jonathan, who is a son of King Saul. Uh, Saul dies, uh, well, he commits suicide actually, uh, but Saul dies in, in the battles that were taking place there. So did Jonathan. Jonathan died as well. Um, all of his household basically died, except for one, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, if you look in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's when they all died. They died at Jezreel. Jonathan died. But Jonathan's son, not... I thought you said he was Saul's son. Uh, yes, okay. Uh, let me see. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. As she fled in her haste, fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Um, let me make sure of that. I'm not totally sure about that. Again, son, grandson. And that's what's going to matter in the end. But I have to double check on that one. Anyway, he was, he was crippled, and so he couldn't be a soldier, and he didn't go out to this, you know, he's too little, too, as well. So he does not die, along with all the other sons of Saul. Um, uh, and, and an interesting thing then happens. Second uh, Samuel... Uh, let's see, let's go to 2 Samuel 9 and David's kindness to Mephibosheth. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son, there it is, son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. 
And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Let's think about this a little bit. Um, why, Why would Mephibosheth say such a thing as a dead dog as I. Now, to help you understand that a little bit, um, let's go to a couple things I wanted to, to point out here. 2006, Britain paid the last installment of its loan that we gave them in World War II. 43, I think it was 43 million pounds British paid us that was the last installment of the loan. We remember the Lend-Lease? We, we loaned them all kinds of, of uh, stuff. Um, money and you know, tanks and airplanes and all kinds of stuff. Did the same thing for the Soviet Union. I, I'd like to go back and find out, did, the, did they ever pay us back? Uh, I'm not sure about that one. But Britain did pay us back. They paid off that, that loan. And, um, and, and so let's think about Saul and all the ways he tried to kill David and you know remember he tried to throw he threw spears at him tried to kill him um, uh, David had every right to, to confiscate Saul's property right but uh, he doesn't he gives it to Mephibosheth now just to show you how interesting this is I have a question this is an interesting historical question did Adolf Hitler have a son? He claims that he didn't, but if you look at, I'm going to pull up an article here that I've saved. Let's see. Historians as well as Hitler himself claim that he never fathered a child. But there is a man who claims to have been the Fuhrer's son, and Hitler may have known about him all along. Adolf Hitler's reign of terror ended in 45, but his bloodline may not have. Over the past 70 years, humanity has recovered, uh, has recovered, yet one question remains. Did Hitler have children, and is there an heir to his legacy of terror? Inside the Berlin bunker of 1945, he married actress Eva Braun. The couple, however, had no chance to start a family of their own. One of the history's worst di- dictators took his life uh, only an hour after the ceremony while Braun died alongside her husband. Since that day, historians have concluded there is no evidence to confirm the existence of any Hitler children. While the dictator did often speak of his love for children, he denied fathering any of his own. Following the end of World War II, however, rumors spread that a secret child of Hitler did exist. Even the Fuhrer's valet, a man named Heinz Linge, stated that he once heard Hitler speculating that he had fathered a child. What's more, people around the globe have long feared, here's where I'm getting to, that any such boy or girl would follow in their father's footsteps. Despite these fears, all of, that, all of the rumors concerning Hitler's children were deemed unsubstantiated. That is, until Jean-Marie Loret came forward. So I'll let you read the rest of that article on your own. Now, there's a movie waiting to be, to be written. And, you know, if you want to have a blockbuster movie, Hitler's Secret Boy. And uh, why is this important? Well, imagine if Hitler did have a child like this. 
Can you imagine that child eating at the White House? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know what I'm saying is that the, this is, this, the fear is that if there's any descendants left, you know, that could be a gathering point for people who want to restart the Nazi party, right? And uh, this is the way they looked at these kinds of things. And so Mephibosheth, even though he's crippled and he's not a warrior type person, he still is the line of Saul. And loyal, those guys loyal to Saul could have gathered around him and, and said, we're going we're gonna to rebel against David. This isn't over yet. Uh, and we have now, we have you as our uh, kind of um, gathering person. We can gather around you. You are the uh, core for us. See, And so in no most circumstances, Mephibosheth would have been quickly dispatched uh, to eliminate any possibility of something like this happening. But David doesn't do that at all. Again, that shows how different David is from all the other kings. Uh, David not only does not kill Mephibosheth, he actually restores the property of his uh, grandfather Saul to him, and he, uh, he, he, he has him eat. He's a, he's a friend of the family, and he, he eats at David's table for the rest of his life. Uh, that's a great example of this is the way God, this is the way God loves us. We are all, as sinners, part of this satanic rebellion against the Lord. <clears throat> and we too could say with Mephibosheth, what is your servant that I should show regard, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Uh, that is, uh, that's our confession as well to the Lord. Why should you show mercy to us, Lord? We were, we were, we were part of the rebellion. And it doesn't matter whether we were active in it or not. We are of the lineage of the re rebellion here, the lineage of Adam and Eve, right? And so we don't deserve this. This is a great example of God's love for sinners, rebels. Uh, and this is Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or to the, rep, to the thief that was just uh, minutes before mocking and blaspheming him, saying to him, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, he's like, we're all Mephibosheth in that regard. We're all, we got a bad lineage. <laughs> we, we were on the wrong team. And, uh, you know, and when the war was over, we, we are in big trouble now. But the king comes to us and he says, now this is also interesting. David says, why? It's for Jonathan's sake, too, that he's kind to Mephibosheth. And so this really has a lot of kind of overtones to Jesus. So for Jesus' sake, he treats us like David treated Mephibosheth. For Jesus' sake, we are um, not, not killed, uh, but blessed and invited to the Lord's table. And uh, what a beautiful, that's a beautiful, beautiful image of the gospel uh, there in the Old Testament. Uh, <clears throat> very, very 
uh, powerful. So I'm going to stop there. Any last uh, thoughts or questions about this? John? You all have to remember that we're sons of Adam and uh, daughters of Eve. So we carry in our nature right. this curse. We carry that curse in our nature, exactly. And uh, there's just, that's, that's, you cannot, and this is, this is again back to uh, why, why Jesus is the Messiah, right? That's another thing. The, those who reject Jesus as the Messiah also reject that, really reject that concept. You know, that, that we are actually, uh, by nature, rebels, of God. And this is something Paul brings out in his letters, in his preaching. He stresses this over and over again that uh, we are part of the, the rebellion against God. And therefore, there's no good works that we can do to make up for that. We could only be uh, saved by grace, by the king looking at us like David looked at Mephibosheth and said, you know, and this is, look at this. Look, compare this, for example, to the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, right? He does the same thing. I'm not worthy to be your son. You know, let me, let me be a servant, a slave in your household. The, what does the father say? Forget it, you know? Get the ring. Kill the fatted calf. Um, my son was lost, but now he has been found. And so this is... Uh, the same thing happening here in the life of David. Very, very beautiful uh, story. So now the next time you go to uh, trivia, uh, you do Bible trivia, uh, and the question of Mephibosheth comes up, uh, hopefully uh, you can remember the story here. But no, it is a good one for all of us. It just shows us how, how appreciative we really should be for the grace of God. And let me close with a prayer then. Lord, thank you for this study of David and Mephibosheth, and uh, we ask your blessings uh, upon our reflections on this. Uh, help us also, like Mephibosheth, to make that confession that uh, we don't deserve the things that we have from the king's table, uh, but for Jesus' sake, you invite us and welcome us. And we are eternally grateful for that, and we want to live uh, in service to you all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.